Hello and welcome to Something to Do with Art with me, Robert Good. In this episode, I meet up with artist and photographer Gemma Marmalade. Gemma is a senior lecturer at the University of Derby and she is also studying for her PhD entitled In a Manner of Speaking, The Subversive Voice in Performative Art. I really want to talk to Gemma about her work in the context of truth. Gemma is a performance artist and her work often blurs the boundaries between truth and fiction. So how does that play out in today's climate of fake news and contested realities? I also can't wait to meet a marmalade. I want to find out what lies behind such an unusual surname. Our conversation takes place at Gemma's kitchen table, where she does a lot of her thinking and writing, and we are accompanied by the dulcet tones of Buster the Budgerigar. So join me for this edition of Something to Do with Art, and let's see where today's conversation might take us. Darby to meet artist and photographer Gemma Marmalade. Hello Gemma. Hello, thank you ever so much for coming up Robert, it's really nice to have an opportunity to have a chat. No, it's absolutely, I'm, I'm delighted to be here and really looking forward to it and I should say probably also for my uh, listeners that we are joined as well by Buster in yes. the background. Yes, Buster Bell actually is his full name. Okay, maybe we can start, I like to sometimes uh, look on websites to see what you've written about yourself oh. and would you mind if I share a little bit about what you've said yeah, about yourself? Well, so here we go, so apparently... <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Gemma Marmalade is a contemporary British artist currently undertaking doctoral research entitled In a Manner of Speaking, The Subversive Voice in Performative Art at the Cambridge School of Art, Anglia Ruskin University. Gemma is also an academic and senior lecturer in critical and experimental approaches to photography at the University of Derby. Her work specialises in photography, video and performance, which playfully negotiate the authenticity of speech acts, history and science with queer politics. Sounds about right, I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what I was going to say was I think that's absolutely fab because I look at people's statements and some of them I get and some of them I don't. Some mm. of them I think are a little bit woolly. But I think you've absolutely nailed it, though. I think that's really clear and concise. Oh, gosh. For someone who's really not clear and concise and who's uh, pretty oh. vague, I, that's not bad. I'll take that. Thanks, well, Robert. Well, I was going to say, do words come easily to you? No. No, no, they don't, actually. In fact, I think going back to... I had an English teacher at school uh, who described my speech-making and writing as though that he, were, uh, he was on a roller coaster of information. That <laughs> 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 always stuck with me, and um, the way that I spoke was dysfunctional, but he quite enjoyed it. He said it was like a, you know, a cheeky night out. <laughs> That's how he described it. So um, I, I'm always fearful that I don't have a great deal of clarity. Well, maybe now you need to go back and add in <laughs> and specialises in writing like Cheeky Night Out. 
oh well, that, well anyway. consider it done right. you know there yeah that's going to happen that's a little bit of consultancy <laughs> just, just throw just it in just the fee yeah. <laughs> so we've got lots to talk about mm. um, and I'm particularly interested in of course your work and uh, also I want to t- talk to you a little bit about Las Vegas and mm. so on as well mm. But before we begin, I really wanted to, I'm sorry, but I've got to ask you about your fantastic surname, Marmalade. Yes. Well, um, I can confirm there are only two Marmalades in the world. That's myself and my partner, Mel. Wow. But the reason why uh, we have the name Marmalade is that when my partner and I had our originally our civil partnership, our maiden names, we looked at combining them, we looked at double-barrelling them, and we sounded like a, a very extensive partnership solicitors. You know, it was just too long, it was too fussy. Um, so that said, we, um, we started to sort of think about, well, what connects us in our familial histories? Um, and we realised that there was, through our conversations about memories from childhood that there was something that connected us and that was um, that Mel's grandfather ran a barber shop in Bridlington and her grandmother would make jams chutneys and marmalade to sell in the barber shop now for me my grandfather when he met my grandmother this is my paternal grandparents um, my grandmother's name was Queenie Quick But she originally had Spanish heritage. So when my granddad first met my grandmother, he wanted to woo her um, through making marmalade with Seville oranges. So I grew up with this romantic notion of their courting and also this thing to do with names, you know, the changing of names. So there was this connection with marmalade. But what was interesting that was, and this really connects with my practice, is that when my grandfather died i had always thought that my granddad had been had been grating these seville oranges and and he had kind of told me that in this act of love you know it's a laborious process making marmalade and when he died in the in the in the garage it was just full of like hartley's concentrating oh no so he had never actually he'd been he'd been faking it you know with this kind of ready-made poil in the boiling water there you go there's your marmalade i was devastated but well but also kind of intrigued because the fact that a lot of my work is playful about truth and fiction and storytelling i had been seduced by this story as a child that made me attribute this name to myself to then find out it was all a bit of a tall story but that's also a perfect link to my practice as well well as we shall come on to but yeah. that is incredible isn't yeah. it yeah yeah because i well i was rather well i mean that is a fantastic story in itself i was i and i've done a whole lot of research on my notes here that now i fear might be redundant because <laughs> <laughs> i love the whole thing about surnames but and growing up as a good, you know, and I was yes. always told, you know, good brothers never quarrel and <laughs> are you good and all this type of stuff. Yeah. And this thing about nominative determinism where mm. people kind of grow to become mm. 
what their surname suggests they, mm. they will be. So I was going to ask you, you know, what's what's the marmalade nominative determinism? Oh. But maybe, but in a way, you, you, you've yet to find out, but in a way, there's, there, you've chosen something that kind of retrofits yes. something about yes. that. Anyway, well, I, okay, I'm going to have to carry forward all that research into another podcast. Oh, another, yes, another. yes. <laughs> well, maybe um, that will be a good... Uh, way to start to think about some of your work and mm. ideas of truth because that was definitely something that really intrigues me anyway mm. and I know is something that is part of one of your concerns isn't it in mm. your work definitely would you like to say a little bit about green fingered because yes that's fantastic. yes so I was doing some research on an archive and came across a particular archive which fascinated me. It fascinated me because it had the, the relationship with queerness, which is something I've investigated again, um, given my own sexuality, but also um, uh, you know, an alternative way of looking at histories. So having looked at this, uh, found this archive, it was about finding a German botanist called Dr. Gerda Haeckel, who was a radical feminist, uh, graduated post-war, but was active in the 70s and an early 80s where she was really aggressively investigating the potential connection with, uh, in horticulture and agriculture, how women and certain groups of women might have a different relationship with the development and the growth and the proliferation of, of their goods, whether it be fruits, vegetables, plants. So we're looking at kind of German communes of mostly lesbian women um, who were living together and becoming self-sufficient in the land. So she came up with this kind of what was deemed at the time, uh, what was completely thrown out because it, it was just considered ridiculous, especially obviously by a, a dominantly male orientated field in science, was that women might have the capacity to pheromonally transfer through tending to the land some kind of biotic potential that would allow these vegetables to grow. So of course, for me, finding this archive, because it had been completely panned at the time, she was laughed out of, out of her role, kind of went into seclusion because you know she was just, her, her career was in tatters. So to find this archive of images and, and notebooks and, and, and all of these sort of details, so I wanted to, to take this archive and give it a platform and to take the premise of the research and present that with a series of portraits of images of women uh, who have cultivated these vegetables. So in many ways, I'm a curator in the organisation of this body of work. So, uh, and so much of our history, you know, queer history is ignored, um, as in so many other uh, groups um, and communities of people who have been disenfranchised or have been separated off or othered. So uh, yeah, that's kind of been my responsibility to create new ways of, of representing history. Mm. Yeah, and uh, well, I mean, I must confess, when I first looked at some of that, I thought, I, this can't be real. It doesn't look as though it's kind of like... Uh, uh, it seems so much of the past. It seems so much of a different era mm, mm. that it was that it seemed kind of uh, just a completely different way of looking at things. Mm. Well, there's a. I mean, I think one of the things I'm interested in is 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 that kind of juxtaposition of time of of what it is to look back on something retrospectively and reimagine it under a new context. And of course, I'm in a position to be able to show that work now. Because we do look at it under such an, in such a new context. 
and it does seem kind of quite bizarre. But then, you know, there are, you know, science has developed obviously, of course, a lot since those times when, and there is perhaps lots of research to suggest that the, the environments of, of plants and, and vegetables actually do thrive. I mean, there's, you know, you know now, I mean, certainly in the, in the late 20th and 21st century, there's lots of very reputable uh, research that says, playing music to plants, for example, they'll grow better in certain, you know, atmospheric environments of mood. And, you know, that's not a joke. No, now, no. that's legitimate bona fide research. So in many ways, you know, maybe Haeckel was a trailblazer at that time. Um, you know, maybe now, if, if that research were about now, maybe she would, you know, it would be taken more seriously. But of course, at the time, what I was interested in the fact that she was completely rejected, uh, simply on the basis of her sex and her politics. So I feel that, you know, it's that, that idea of, um, of reigniting the past, to quote, Walter Benjamin, you know, <laughs> and be able to see it in a new way. Mm. And then, how, so now you're doing a PhD, mm. um, and how did you kind of get from A to B, from the green-fingered work, to mm. choosing the topic for your mm. PhD? Well, it's interesting because, like when you get to the point when you're thinking about PhD, um, you start to reflect on your practice and start to think, well, what's what brings everything together. Um, so the thing that unified everything was the fact that all of these stories, including the one to do with Gerda Haeckel, is a total construct. Everything that I just said was, wasn't real. Gerda Haeckel didn't exist. Um, she's not a real person. She's entirely fabricated by me. But I've been able in my career to make these works, present the authority of the story through not just the visual evidence that I represent, but the way I talk about them. Can I just stop mm, you there? Yes. I'm so glad you said that. I was sitting here thinking, I'm sure that Gerda Hegel doesn't exist. No. And uh, I mean, she might, have, she might have done. I might, you know, have you well, invented her? So I should say for my listeners, so I did my little bit of research, and the reason I wanted to kick off with Green Fingered is that you've created, as I understood it before we've just been talking, mm. this fictional persona. Yes of this re German researcher, mm -hmm. but you were talking to me just now so confidently that mm. in a way that she existed that I did not dare contradict you and yes. I did not dare say to you, I've hang, got on this, hang on, I've got yeah. this totally wrong and I'm thinking, where is this conversation going yes, now? Yes, yes, yes. And that's, well, that's exactly, I think, the neck of the woods which you are operating exactly. in. So exactly, exactly. I, I, <laughs> I can only, the only thing I would say is that, did you know there, there is a real Gerda Haeckel? Because I, I, I did look her up. I did Google it just to be sure. Yes, yes. Did you know that? Yeah, I did. But what, what is interesting, and going back to what you were saying, is that as well as presenting these words, I couldn't believe, Robert, the amount of crap I could say that people would believe. You're going to tell me the marmalade story is not true. No, no, as no, well, no, 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 that is true. No, no, no. I, well, this is the thing. Even my students say to me, you know, we just don't know what to believe. Anything that comes out of your mouth, and that, and that's fine. And I'm not trying to purposely dupe anybody with any malicious intent. But it's fascinating because what I, I started to do as I you know, built through my career and then was exhibiting, I was invited to give artist talks, I found that the artist talks of me talking about the fictions, it made sense to speak of them and tell the story. 
And then at a certain point, I would then collapse it and then reveal to the audience, especially if it's to a student body, because I feel an, a responsibility to students who are learning and so on. Uh, and I realised I had real collateral in my ability as a storyteller and the fact that I would use my authority as being an artist, but also as an academic and then as a researcher, as a PhD researcher. And if I, I realised if I said something with enough conviction, look someone in the eye, sound like I've got all my facts down, I look like a researcher, I sound like a researcher, I can abuse all of the things that I have going for me in my whatever status there is of being an academic, to say all kinds of crap. And everyone is just believes it. And I try and use it as a tool, especially with my students, to think about the validity of everything that, that is said to you. So whilst I am spinning this web of lies and presenting it, I am then straight away deconstructing it and revealing that because I think there's ne it's never been more important to actually challenge and question the validity and authenticity of A, the things that we're told, or B, the things that we're shown in evidence. Yeah, well, we'll come on to that in a mm. minute, but just to feed back, A, I should say, I'm, I am a gullible person. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll believe pretty to well any, anything. Well, I don't know, but I was just sitting here and thinking, I just don't know where to go with this now because I'm mm. thinking that how can I say that what you're saying is not true when it's your body of work, it's yeah, your work, exactly. not me. So that kind of power dynamic between us. And yet mm. I thought to myself, I'm sure I looked at this and I, mm. I thought this must be fiction, you mm. know, and I was going to ask you whether it was or not, mm. but I just didn't feel that I could say anything. Mm. My research, my PhD research is interested in how people are compelled by my ability to speak in certain ways and say certain things in certain conditions. Yes, because there was a piece of work that I was going to ask you. Well, there's so many pieces of work that I want to ask you about, but you did hire a coach, didn't mm. you, to help you tell a story about the one that got away, mm. the, the, fish, the, the fisherman's tale, and get coached to make it more um, yeah. believable. Yeah. So I, I filmed on, on the first, very first take of this coach correcting me and interrupting me as I was reciting it. So you can see in, in that video how he is stopping me and saying, okay, when you say that, open your hands and, and like turn your head to the side because this is a conciliatory way to turn your head as you say this. Um, it's conciliatory, it's open, that will help an audience can, you know, and of course the presentation skills coach is somebody whose job it is to train people, speech makers, uh, businessmen, um, life coaches, all of those sort of people, evangelists, you know, an amazing, you know, demographic of clientele, how to, to be even more convincing, how to make people believe you. So we would recite it and then we started again and we, and we did it over and over and we did it 16 times until he told me that I was now, in a, that this was now an acceptable position. And he was actually able, I love this bit, he was actually able to say to me through some weird algorithm or calculation that I would be 62% more convincing in version 16 than I was. And so 62% more people would believe me of wow. saying that story. So yeah, so it, that, that really was, it was the first kind of project in my PhD where I wanted to deconstruct what it is to tell a lie, be told how to lie better, 
and then expose that mechanism. And uh, well, I've got to ask you: Do you have you carried forward those lessons into real life? Yeah, I'm sixty-two percent more convincing. <laughs> Tick. I feel like it. I should put it on my website or something. It's like you know, yeah, certified. Uh, yeah, certified. Sixty-two percent more convincing in, in, in saying absolute bullshit. <laughs> but I've. I mean, I've had. Uh, I gave a talk at uh, a Quad in Derby to a really big audience. Uh, kind of an artist talk, big presentation. And I really went to town. And then we and then we had a break. And then when they came back, I just went, killed it. Went, that was all a lie. There was a palpable gasp from everybody, like, oh, you know, uh, and they were like, and everyone was like squirming in their seats. And and then I kind of then tried to say, well, th- th- there is a method in the madness. I'm not just the fact that I'm telling you. Um, which I don't always reveal, dependent on the audience, but the fact that I am telling you. So it's an open secret that I'm a big fat liar, Robert, basically. But then even when I go back to lying again, like I have with you, I absolutely love the fact that people are compelled to be compliant and totally go with it, even when they know it's a lie. They're still compelled when I say it again. Well, this is why I'm, I'm still kind of reliving that experience now. I'm, tr- I'm trying to hold this conversation with you, and I'm still trying to think, what's just happened? You know, it, it was a real kind of like a Darren Brown moment. You know, oh, I was gosh. just kind of stuck in this loop of, I don't, I don't believe this. I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I just could not work out what was happening. Yeah. So that was really, yeah. really fascinating. And it's kind of weird, isn't it? I, I, I cannot believe how I can compel someone through things that I say simply by abuse. What, well, 62% certified, we know that. Well, Gemma, that is all absolutely fascinating. I'd love to talk to you about Las Vegas mm. and also about your latest incarnation as Voda. Yes. But maybe we should stop for a cup of tea first? Yeah, let's have a, have a cup of... Okay, great. Great. for me nothing for you I'm, I'm, I'm still supping on a cloudy lemonade so cloudy I'm all lemonade. good okay. it's a hot day so. it is it is it's a warm one so you have links through your art to Las Vegas do you want to say and in particular in the context we've been skirting around the subject of truth and truth mm-hmm. in your work and the latest iteration of your investigations was with your performative disembodied voice <laughs> called Voda. Yes. Would yes. you like to say a little bit about that? Yes, definitely. I love the uh, artistic creative community in Las Vegas. And Rogers Art Loft are very close to my heart, not just because they offered me a residency for a month, uh, where originally I was going to stay in a wonderful loft, funded, stipend, and make this work. It was going to be amazing. And what I was going to be doing, I was going to be offering on the run-up to the 2020 presidential election a hotline to wisdoms where people can call up and express their anxieties to a, a telephonic service, almost like an agony aunt, I suppose, on the end of a phone, and talk about their worries, concerns, issues, 
and then a telephone operator being me from this call centre in Las Vegas will we'll take the call and have a conversation, talk naturally with the person on the end of the phone. But then what I would do is I would be matching key words that they were saying to a spreadsheet of speeches and I would extract that bit of the speech and then not regurgitate it verbatim but kind of pull elements of it and move it into the conversation. And I was going to set up a physical live performance of this call centre which was going to run for 12 hours from the gallery space. But then of course COVID-19 hit so I've had to do it remotely. So I, I did it from the very table that we're sat at. So for 12 hours, I was Voda. It was non-stop. It was a fantastic experience, exhausting to talk constant, constantly. So the plan is, I'm doing it again, but Voda is no more. We now have a service called Dream Operator, where I'm training operators who will be the Dream Operators and they will learn my method and they will graduate from the Dream Operator Academy and we're going to have a graduation ceremony which will then allow them to man a call centre which I will be supervising personally call centre yeah uh, and they will be in operation for 12 hours uh, during the polling period on the 3rd of November on where, the day itself on the day we are trying to influence the vote through this method so that's what's happening for uh, have you been, have, you, have you had a call from the Kremlin yet? Oh yeah. <laughs> the idea is is that we're providing a kind of a consultancy service for people's anxieties around the vote. So it doesn't have a political agenda per se, because there's something that I might say that might really kind of empower the views of someone who might not be politically aligned the same way that I am. So it's designed to to simply hold a mirror up to the American public. So I'm intrigued as to your stance, as I suppose, to fictions in the world of fake news. Yes, yes. Well, there was a point that up until uh, Greenfinger and prior to kind of PhD practice was that, you know, people were like, well, you know, is it not, you're a liar, we've got that now, what are you going to do next? The next thing, because otherwise I'm going to be a one-trick pony, right? I'm just going to be doing these, and they'll be like, and everyone will be like, oh yeah, Gemma Marmalade, that didn't happen. Yeah, we get the joke. So, and and that's absolutely fine. I mean, whose whose artist practice doesn't evolve and and, and adapt? So that's been the process of the, of the PhD. It's moved away from these kind of performative fictions, and now this body of work now is really starting to interrogate a nation that is currently swamped with disinformation. It couldn't have been more timely, Trump's reign during my PhD, to have have this notion of fake news adapted and how you can say anything, anything at all. But if again you say it with enough conviction, you say it from a position of authority, you can compel people. I mean that is precisely I'm not saying I'm Trump by any stretch of the imagination, but that's precisely what I've been doing. The fact that he said, what was it yesterday? He said, you know, that you know, the great pandemic of 1917 was was ended by World War II. What? But he's saying this, but he's saying it from this position of authority. That is probably 62% convincing people that that's legitimate. 
you know, they don't question it. So for me, the only thing that I can do, and my connection to Las Vegas goes beyond it just being a place in America, it's because it's a fascinating community. And I love the fact that it's all about the simulation. And that lends a lot to the idea of fictions and cloaking and smoke and mirrors and performance and, you know, even the fact that up until a few years ago, the biggest ventriloquist convention across America was held in Las Vegas. You know, there's all these kind of fabulous connections of stories and lies and experiences and the suspension of disbelief. So, yeah, it's great to kind of run it from there, but to be able to, from this place that's in the middle of the desert, to then expand this voice across America and provide this service, you know, it is, is fantastic. But it is about trying to get to the bottom of those truths and create a counter-narrative to so much happening there. And what I'm always doing is creating a counter-narrative, no matter what the narrative is. I mean, where do you think all the fake news has come from? And, and, and is it possible to get to an ultimate truth? I mean, is it, is it actually possible? Well, that's such a massive question, isn't it? Uh, I mean, truth is, of course, is, is, is so subjective. You know, someone's truth can be the entire opposite to me. Someone's interpretation of an event can be seen in, in, so, many, in so many ways. I think it's impossible to nail down any truth. And certainly what I've learned in my practice that actually the, what you say, and even if knowing it's a fiction, it can absolutely get traction. So, I mean, ominously, I think it was Goebbels who said, you know, the idea of whole Nazi propaganda was that actually if you say something enough, it will become a truth. That's not an, an illusion. It can manifest into a real thing, which is a scary kind of thought. But most certainly, the fact in America there is this direct challenging of, of misinformation, uh, fake news, stories that aren't real, that are, and of course having photographic or video evidence and testimony to, you know, give authority to that evidence. So I think the only thing we can do is, is try and strip it apart with even more information rather than being kind of, you know, reductive about it. So... I think the truth is something that always morphs anyway. So I'm saying there is no truth. <laughs> yes, well, I think that's a scary prospect yes. as well. Yes. And um, the flip side is trying to, trying to get people to change their mind. There are two ways, potentially, to get someone to change their mind. And I mean that in, in a good way, you know, to try and improve mm. things. Mm would be either through kind of, you'd hope that, well, you'd have a shared access to a kind of body of facts that people mm. agree on, and that's yes. becoming problematic. Yes. Or you go route two, which is the, the political, and the 62%, which is the persuasive mm. one. Mm. And that's kind of where we've gone now. I, yes, and I fear that is the direction. It will be less about evidence or fact, because that evidence won't be reliable, because it can be manufactured. So it will be about a feeling, because people are having to go on their gut. Well, I, I, and I think this kind of transition in, in terms of how we think about truth and what, what is truth and what we can know, 
I think it's all bound up with the, the deluge of information and the way the internet has, has brought so, we're so overwhelmed with information, we can't process it yes. all, we, can't, we have yes. to kind of go on, on a gut feel. The previous kind of hierarchies of knowledge, you'd go to the library, you'd go to the single author, yes. authority figure who, yes. who's the expert on it and you would trust them yes. because that's how it worked. Yeah. Whereas now everybody's an author, yes. everybody's got an opinion and trying to converge on the truth. I, I have a feeling, I, I did some philosophy once upon a time, I have a feeling there were two flavours of truth theory. Mm -hmm. One, I'm sure there are plenty more than that, but <laughs> two, one was convergence and mm -hmm. one was coherence. Yes. And you converge on the truth, which we all agree at, which is roughly the kind of scientific approach. Mm -hmm. you know, if we keep hammering away at this, yes. we'll eventually come up with some answers, which is what I want, you know, yes. tell yes. me what... Yes. what and yes. the other one says, well, actually, no, we can never get behind the veil. Mm. We can never get to these absolute truths because mm. of the human condition, That's because right. of the limitations. All we can do is a coherence. We can have, a, we can mm. have facts that kind of add up. Mm. And I think we're now living in this world of coherence where, so a flat earther, mm. that provided they could keep the, the plate spinning and yes. keep it coherent to themselves, yes. Yes. it doesn't actually have to correspond to any Absolutely. underlying reality. Absolutely. Because it, it becomes their reality. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, and they take ownership and conviction of that reality. And if it compels them to feel a certain way, the facts are redundant. Well, that also brings me to, in a funny sort of a way, to Las Vegas and the simulacrum. Yes. And, mm. and do you want to say a little bit about that? Because I, I think I did an essay on Baudrillard. I got a bit cross with him. He can be a bit of a naughty boy. And, and, <laughs> and, and I think, he, you know, when he was saying about the Gulf War doesn't exist and so on, I kind of knew what he meant theoretically, but also, yeah, I, I found some of his stuff problematic, but also I'm, I'm grudgingly having to accept that maybe he was right after mm. all, you know, but do you want to say a little bit about Las Vegas mm. and, and then how maybe it relates to truth or this mm. layer of kind of falsity that's now... Yes, um, I have the same kind of issues with Baudrillard that, that, that you do, for sure. He's also a cheeky night out kind of a theorist. <laughs> so I'm hot on, it, on his heels, maybe, I don't know. But no, I, I am interested in, in the simulacra, uh, you know, from, from that perspective. When I first went to Las Vegas, it was, I knew I was gonna like it because, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at this entirely through the lens of a tourist, of, of going, you know, on your holiday to the pool, you know, and to, and for cocktails and whatever parties and, and, and that kind of thing. But I didn't realise that my vision of obviously Las Vegas being the strip, you have got a fiberglass Eiffel Tower and you have got a fiberglass Sphinx and you have got all of the all of these, the Taj Mahal. these things. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all within proximity of each other. And also I you know I've grown up uh, with a large amount of camp and kitsch in, in my life. My parents were crazy eccentrics. So I knew that when I went to Las Vegas that there were going to be things that I was going to connect with on a kitsch level. Also, growing up as a Roman Catholic, that, I mean, it, that's just, I mean, you can't get more camp than Catholicism. Uh, and I arrived, I was just like, oh no, this is fabulous. It, it was about this concept of the simulacra that, that I found fascinating. And the whole notion of what is bad taste. And it's not ironic either. 
There's a temptation to look at Las Vegas and go, oh, you know, it's so ironic. So that gives, so we can give it some kind of value because it, it's so ironic. But it's not, it has real integrity, actually. So it's that double bluff as well. So if we, looking at kind of Baudrillard and the idea of the, of the simulacre, obviously he talked about Disneyland, didn't he, really? Mm. You know, that it being the Disneyland and Las Vegas being this kind of adult Disneyland of illusion. But I, no, it's not. It's it's a real it's a real thing, and it has it has value, and and it's really you know bourgeois to kind of go oh you know it's so ironic, so it's so bad taste. It's high taste. No, it, it is what it is, and I I really enjoy that there is actually in the illusion or in the simulacra there's actually a truth. There's a real integrity and a sincerity and a value that has its place. I must admit, I'm, I love kitsch as well, and I, mm. I'm, I, I have a similar fascination with it. I, I do think there's a kind of a strange authenticity to kitsch, Absolutely, and, yeah. that actually yeah. it, is, it is what it is. Mm. It really is mm. what it is, mm. and people can play with ideas around mm. kitsch, and they can send mm. it up as they like, mm. but actually at heart, mm. people mm. buy into this mm. stuff, and, and it really is... Mm. The real deal for them, and I think it does. It does also speak to stuff that otherwise, quotes high art or different institutions mm. won't mm. go there. Mm. They won't direct mm. themselves to. Mm. So I, mm. I tend to agree. Mm. Well, it does seem that Las Vegas is is a great place to situate so many of your inquiries. Yes, a hundred percent. It's a wonderful place, and uh, I'm incredibly uh, grateful to uh, all of the amazing people who who are part of this really strong network as well and they all look after each other which is nice but yeah it, it is a match made in heaven or slash hell <laughs> depending on what your your preference is <laughs> is the catholic upbringing uh, yes yes definitely <laughs> well Gemma maybe that's a good place at which to say thank you so much for this conversation oh, yes. that's my pleasure and I think Buster went to um, sleep at one point and Buster. now he's joined he's joined us back in in, in the chat again yes. he hasn't spoken a word though so that's a shame never mind thank you so much thank you for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media and check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.